Today's podcast is brought to you by my number one choice in tires, Pirelli. And since I used to be a race car driver, I know a thing or two about tires. The iconic tire brand is known for its long tradition of innovation, advanced technologies, and high-quality products. Pirelli recently added the new Scorpion All-Season Plus 3 to its American range. Developed to go the distance, it comes with a 70,000-mile treadwear warranty. Choose more mileage, more comfort, more control with the new Scorpion All-Season Plus 3. Ask your local dealer for a tune-up. Trust me, I'm a driver. If life began on Mars, it probably began around the same time that it began on Earth. So three mm-hmm. and a half, four billion years ago. But on Earth, so kind of paradoxically, it's much harder to look back in time because Earth's active. It's got weather, it's got you know, volcanoes, plate tectonics, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So the surface is constantly being renewed. And so it's very, very hard to get samples from Earth of earth as it was three and a half to four billion years ago whereas on mars it stopped being geologically active about three and a half billion years ago so it's been in deep freeze and so these river deltas that perseverance is roving across now are pristine river deltas from three and a half billion years ago they're time capsules so it might be easier to understand the origin of life if it began on mars it might be much easier to do so than it is on our own planet. Welcome to the Pretty Intense Podcast. We're getting into a realm today that is truly one of my favorite realms to talk about. I'm the most fascinated by probably that in psychology. Um, but in fact, we have we kind of enter into a little bit of those realms because within the realm of physics, and we have Brian Cox on the show today, who's a British rock star physicist. Theory of anything started with an idea. We talked about black holes, consciousness, space and time, fractals, like so many areas of physics and science in the universe that um, I just I just love it. And as we learn and understand more and more about our universe, we know our role in it and know how to live our lives. And so that's why I love it so much. Um, but of course, we talked about aliens, extraterrestrials. We talked about his the question that he wants answered in his lifetime, um, which is at the end. And yeah, I think you're just going to love it. This is such a such a cool conversation. Brian is touring the U.S. and Canada. He has, I think, 50 stops on his tour. I was disappointed to hear he wasn't in Phoenix yet, but he's uh, he's coming to you. So if you're interested and you're in the States or in Canada, you can find tickets to Brian's shows at briancoxlive.co.uk for any of those spots that you want to go see him. In the meantime, enjoy this episode. Uh, If you like this show, if you like the kind of things that I talk about, I would just be so honored if you would follow, if you would subscribe, like it, send it to your friends, and then leave comments in the things that you guys grab onto and really love, and I see the views, then we'll just keep doing more of them. So enjoy the episode. Hi, what time? Are you in England right now? Uh, Yeah, just about to fly to uh, New York tomorrow. And the first show is Washington, D.C. on Friday. That's so exciting. Where do you live in England? London. Oh, nice. I lived in um, I lived in Milton Keynes when I was a teenager racing. Oh, yeah. I was going to ask why, but presumably because your your family were there. No. Oh, no. My family didn't go. I was I left when I was 16 and um, they did not come with. So I lived there from 16 to 19 pretty much on my own. 
um, racing cars. So did you ever get into racing being in England? Like, did that ever trip your trigger? Or? I, I've never, um, the only car I've driven really fast officially was uh, on Top Gear, you know, the. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a very popular show. And I, I went faster than Bear Grylls, which was. No, you didn't. Oh, my God. Yeah. Bear is such a nice guy. I did his show Running Wild. He's a really he's a really cool guy as well. He's great. But he's slower than me in a car. <laughs> I'm going to have to give him some crap about that. I'm definitely going to text him and be like, Brian Cox said he went faster in a race car than you. I'm trying to guess, buddy. Why don't you have the bravery? Where's it at? Because <laughs> he sure does. He had me jumping out of helicopters and rappelling across canyons and all kinds of frightening stuff. But did they yeah. have you on the show Top Gear just as a guest to experience cars or were you like breaking down the physics of cars? No, it was just a, it's a thing. Uh, it used to be called Star in a reasonably priced car, but it was, a, it, it was when they were doing it with rally cars. So it was a bit of a rallying in a mini, which was quite cool. And so that's, that's what I did. So I was specifically there to race Bear. That's awesome. Well, then let's like step aside from racing because that's not at all what I want to talk about today. Your realm of expertise is so fascinating to me. The amount of time that I walk around in the day and just wonder what's real and what's happening. And then thinking back to when I was a kid and looking up to the sky and goes, thinking to myself, it goes on for infinity. But what is at the end of infinity? It doesn't. I can't. Oh, my brain. Is that what you did when you were a kid? Did you like, did you look up at the sky and just go, I need to know? Yeah. I mean, that, that's how I got into science. It was astronomy, J just like you, just looking up at the, the night sky, something captured my imagination. And fortunately for me, I made the connection. I thought, well, actually learning about these points of light and what they are is science. And so I started paying attention at school to science because I wanted to know about astronomy and also science fiction, actually. I grew up, you know, Star Wars was the huge thing when I was nine, 10 years old. Um, and, and so I connected all that as well and thought it's, it's all the same thing. And I want to know more about it. And that's the, the wonderful thing about astronomy, as you say, is the more you learn about those points of light in the sky, the more wonderful they become. Um, in the morning at the moment, the, the planets are up kind of early morning. And Jupiter, for example, you know, if, if you look at that just through a pair of binoculars or a small telescope, you see the moons. And then you realize that one of those moons, Europa, has an ocean below its surface, which has got more water than all the oceans of the Earth combined. Is the size of Europa similar to Earth? It's smaller. It's kind of almost a small planet sized. So it's smaller than the Earth, okay. but it's just water beneath the surface. I was at JPL a few weeks ago, actually, where they, where they build the space probes. And um, they're, they're building a thing called Europa Clipper now, which is going to go to that moon. And one of the reasons is because it's one of our prime candidates for life. So then you know the point of light that you're looking at might have life on it or in it, in the ocean. And off you go. When I visited Egypt, I was introduced to an expert aromacologist who explained the healing powers of various scents. I returned home with 18 bottles of powerful essences that unlocked specific feelings and had all sorts of healing properties. I became inspired to find a functional way to deliver them in a new consumer lifestyle product. Candles became my medium. Voyant means seer, a reference to the inner eye chakra one of the key energy points in the body essential to wellness and healing. Voyant is a doorway to openness and imagination. 
a catalyst in our daily journey. Whether you're connecting with others or enjoying alone time, Voyant strives to beautify the home and the soul, to create a haven of peace and joy. The candle is delivered with a beautiful monogram 12-ounce stemless wine glass, which can be used after the wax is gone. My limited edition candle collection is available exclusively at voyantbydanica.com. Did that also make you wonder when you looked out to the sky whether or not there were other entities out there too? Well, yeah. And, um, you know, microbes might be really common. So also, as we speak, there's a rover called Perseverance on Mars, which is now in a river delta, it's just arrived, an ancient river delta. And it's it's taking samples below the surface because three and a half billion years ago, that surface was underwater. And so we want to know whether there are signs of life. And the, the most amazing thing about that mission is that Perseverance, the rover, is the first bit. So it's packaging up samples and it's going to leave them on the surface of Mars. And then the next thing, another mission is going to go and land another lander on Mars, which is going to go and collect the samples, put them in a rocket. And the rocket is going to be, believe it or not, catapulted up off the surface. And then they're going to light the rocket and it's going to fly <laughs> into orbit around Mars. And then they're going to send another mission, which is going to go and find this thing, which has got the samples in it, which is only about the size of a baseball. And then it's going to find it in orbit around Mars, get it, and then bring it back to Earth. And ultimately, it's going to crash land in Utah in the desert. And then they're going to go and find that and bring it back to the laboratory to look for signs of life on Mars. It's the most incredible. It's called Mars Sample Return. And the more you talk about it, the more crazy. Right. It that sounds. does sound like quite the choreographed um, mission because um, yeah. there's so many missions. Now, I've heard you talking about this before and thinking that maybe there's going to be information in that in those samples, in those core samples to how life began and it might help us understand how our life began. Is that accurate? Yeah, the, the, the interesting thing about Mars is that if life began on Mars, it probably began around the same time that it began on Earth. So three and a half, four billion years ago. But on Earth, sort of kind of paradoxically, it's much harder to look back in time because Earth's active. It's got weather, it's got you know, volcanoes, plate tectonics, all this stuff. So the surface is constantly being renewed. And so it's very, very hard to get samples from Earth of Earth as it was three and a half to four billion years ago. It's almost impossible. Whereas on Mars, it stopped being geologically active about three and a half billion years ago. So it's been in deep freeze. And so these river deltas that Perseverance is roving across now are pristine river deltas from three and a half billion years ago. They're time capsules. So it might be easier to understand the origin of life if it began on Mars. It might be much easier to do so than it is on our own planet. How far down are those? The water now is probably is way deeper. But um, th these were, this was surface water three and a half billion years ago. Yeah. So the idea is that if there were microbes in that river delta, then their remains or the traces they've left will be just below the surface. And that's why we're taking these samples to bring back to Earth. So, okay, so if we can look back to that time and say, maybe this is an indication of how life started, would it be far-fetched to think that if we just look to how we're doing it right now, 
to find life, that that's just how life started then too. So like extraterrestrials or another, somebody you're finding another planet to, in, to live on. Could yeah, it just be someone from another planet coming to figure out and like, oh, look here, we can, this is how it started. Somebody visited and said, this looks like a nice home. It's one of the, one of the big questions we have about the origin of life is, of course, how often did it happen? Um, in, right. in, in the solar system like ours, it obviously happened here. Or did it? Uh, because we know that sat material is transferred between the planets. So we have Martian meteorites on the Earth. We have bits of the Earth on Mars, although we've not found them. But because bits of Mars land on Earth, we assume that bits mm. of Earth land on Mars. And mm -hmm. so it, it's not completely impossible that life began once on Earth or Mars and got transferred. And so we, the first thing we want to know if we find signs of life on Mars is, is it the same? So does it look, you know, does it have DNA? Is it in some sense the same as the life on Earth or is it different? So was there a different genesis? How many different ways are there of being alive? We, we don't know because we have only one example, which is Earth. So these are profound questions. And then to go on to your next question, then, then you start saying, well, but what, what about what's the chance that given microbes the origin of life little cells or something like that what are the chances of those cells ultimately getting together into things like you and me um, which are these hugely complex things the most complex things we know of anywhere in the universe the things that can have a conversation mm -hmm. right, and think and feel and bring meaning to the universe in a very real sense and all we know again is that it took about over three billion years from the origin of life on earth to get anything more complex than a single cell. It's about 3 billion years. It's a quarter of the age of the universe. And so the, what I talk about in the live show actually is if, if I was to guess, and we, we don't know, but if I was to guess how many civilizations there are in a galaxy like the Milky Way with 400 billion suns and countless trillions of planets, I'd, I'd guess there might be a handful, maybe even one, which is us. I think the chances of civilizations appearing on planets, it's a big ask when you think about it, isn't it? I mean, to think, you know, it's one thing to have some chemicals getting together and turning into a cell and it's a living thing. And it's a huge deal that it's a big thing in itself. But then the idea that those cells decide to collaborate together and build spaceships is, is a whole other, it's a whole other question. <laughs> right. And create these complex missions to get things off Mars. So then would it be accurate to say that if you thought that there could be a handful or even one civilization in a galaxy, that there would be one to a handful in every galaxy? The, the Milky Way is not that atypical that we know of. Um, our estimate, by the way, for the number of galaxies in the piece of the universe we can see, which is called the observable universe, is two trillion. Right? Two trillion. That's a lot of neighbors that are not yeah. real close. So. So, you know, I, I think the Milky Way is fairly typical. We don't really see anything that's massively unusual. So I think that I'm sure, as sure as I can be, that there are civilizations out there somewhere in the universe. But the question really, if we want to ever meet them, or we really want to, you know, see extraterrestrial life, the question is how many are in our neighborhood? And, and I'm being loose with the word neighborhood because the Milky Way galaxy is what, 150,000 light years across or something like that with four, 400 billion suns. So it's big. But let's say that's yeah. our neighborhood. Imagine if we're the only one in there. Um, that's a, 
it's it's quite a it, it's there's quite a responsibility we have, I would say. If that's the in the heart of Napa Valley lays Somnium, which means to dream in Latin. The Somnium Vineyard Estate is an extension of the love and intensity that I pour into everything I do. To experience our wines, visit SomniumWine.com and use the code Somnium to receive a $10 flat shipping rate. Please drink responsibly. Case. I, I was asked to give the um to give the intro. Um the, the COP26 climate summit. Um, so it was quite an honor, actually. They said to me, what would you say to the world leaders? Um, if you've got one message to them about the, the, the progress we need to make of climate, what would it be? And I said this, I said that as far as I know, if you, if you, it, it's a possibility at least. So let's say it's our operating premise that we are the only civilization in the Milky Way galaxy at the moment. Um, that means that this planet, this little speck of dust, notwithstanding its physical insignificance, is almost indescribably valuable because it could be the only place where atoms have got together to think and feel and in a very deep sense bring meaning to the universe. Because I would argue that you need things as complex as human brains. You need thoughts to have meaning. And so if you collectively were leaders through inaction or deliberate action, remove us from yeah. this world, then you may be responsible for eliminating meaning in a galaxy of 400 billion stars potentially forever. That's the responsibility that you have. And that's an example of why I think that science is so valuable. It's not because it has the answers to everything. We don't have the answers to everything. Science is fundamentally a humble pursuit. It's based on the idea that we don't know everything. Therefore, we try to find out and do research. But it does give us perspective. Um, my, my great hero, Carl Sagan, said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. So it's humbling because it tells us that we're tiny, it's a speck of dust. But it's character-building because it says that we might also be extremely valuable and we might underestimate our cosmic significance. Um, so we have a tremendous responsibility. I think it's a good working assumption. And I don't think that, you know, the more the more world leaders and our politicians, the more perspective they have and the more the more they understand the potential tragedy of damage in this world. I think that I really do think the better they behave. They just need to do a bit of astronomy. In fact, I'd, <laughs> yeah, launch, no, I'd launch them into space. But, you know, I, people talk about commercial space, maybe we'll talk about it. But one of the great benefits for me would be to launch every world leader into space before they start so they can look at the Earth from space and get a sense of its beauty and fragility and ultimately, I think, its significance. And then, um, and then you know, we can choose. Maybe we can vote which ones to bring back. But <laughs> broadly speaking, <laughs> I'd bring most of them back again. Exactly. And just say, there you go. Now you've seen what you are responsible for. Yeah, I think that's an absolutely fantastic idea. Um, why is that? Like, what is taking so long? Is it, do you, does, is it a complicated? Obviously, it's complicated. But, you know, from things I've heard, it's like timeline wise, it, it, presumably we could have, should have, would have been off planet by now. Is there anything well, uh, that holds that back? And And I think that as you just said, talking about world leaders and everybody understanding what is at on the line, looking at our planet, 
Like, why are we fighting each other? I feel like there's all kinds of memes and funny things about aliens looking down at Earth going like, they're still fighting each other down there. Like, if we got off planet and if world leaders could see it from that distance, maybe they would say like, wow, we're all for one instead of fighting within. It's kind of like, it's like viruses within a planet just sort of like fighting each other. Yeah, it sounds almost, you know, it, it, when you say it, it, and I say exactly what you just said, and it almost sounds naive in a way. People say, oh, you've been so naive. But actually, if you look at the astronauts, and I've been so lucky to meet a few astronauts, and um, they, they all say that many of them, you know, the Apollo astronauts were test pilots. They're military people. And so they weren't particularly disposed to these kind of contemplative thoughts when they left the Earth. But all of them say that. They all say that there's one, I can't, I can't remember, it's one of the Apollo astronauts. He's, he was asked, what, what do you think when you, were, you went around the moon and saw Earthrise? And he said, why the hell can't we get along? It vividly sort of c comes into view when you see the Earth for what it is, which is a tremendously valuable and yet fragile place. And so I think it would make a difference. Um, and and the, the answer to your question is we can do it now. So it, the, the real leap forward has been... Um, really i think the private sector now is spacex yeah. and blue origin developing um uh, reusable rockets which makes it really cheap it, it, you know in in the scheme of things yeah. I, I talked to you i'll name drop now um but i i spoke to uh, jeff bezos i i'm it was great fun actually talking to him and he pointed out that imagine that you, um, you know, transatlantic flights. I'm going to fly to New York um, tomorrow from London. Imagine that you got on the plane in, in London, flew to New York, everyone got off the plane, and then you destroyed the plane. Right? Imagine how much the ticket would be. But that's what we've done. All our space exploration up until very recently was single-use rockets. And now we don't do that anymore. Um, then I, I think that it, space is going to become more accessible to, to everybody. And um, hopefully, therefore, it should be a responsibility, shouldn't it? I think, you know, the, the next president of the United States, we, he could be flown or she could be flown into space for, a, you know, a fraction, what is it, way less than a million dollars, right? You could fly them up, let them look at the earth, fly them back again. I think that would be a great investment. I definitely agree. How come we haven't been to the moon in like 50 years? And how come I've seen videos that says we lost the technology to go to the moon? Uh, what is the truth about all that? We sort of initially lost it after the 1970s. Um, what does that mean? What does it mean to well, lose it's, technology? It's very, it's very, very difficult and expensive to build a Saturn V. In those days, in the 60s, I'd say it was right on the edge of our capabilities. It's astonishing that we managed to do it. I well, they say the, uh, now that your telephone has more capabilities than what they had in totality to fly to the moon. More. Way more. So it was, it was almost too hard. Um, and I remember I, I got to speak to Charlie Duke, who um, flew, walked on the moon, Apollo 16. And he said that his dad remembered the Wright brothers flight. Right? So his dad <laughs> remembered the Wright brothers and then saw his son walk on the moon. So that's just almost impossible to believe. It was done. The other thing Charlie Duke said is that he said, when you've got like um, uh, 700,000 engineers and unlimited budget, you can do a lot. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> right? And so, so that's how they did it. 
But then, of course, it, at the time, it was very difficult, very dangerous and very expensive. And it was one of the great human achievements that we managed to do it. Now, it's um, it's a lot less dangerous, a lot cheaper. And we have the technology and the computing power, as you say, to do it rather much more easily. So that's why we're going back now, because it's not you don't need 700,000 engineers and unlimited budget. Um, you, you now can do it. You know, SpaceX are pretty close to being able to do that uh, in the it's private just a Delta sector. flight. Now it's just a Delta flight, you know, where do you want to go? Oh, let's go to the moon. Well, it won't be long. You know, I don't think it'll be long until people, you know, initially people with quite a lot of money, but then um, the, the price will come down that, that pe- not ordinary people, if they really want to, you know, you sometimes go on a vacation and you say, right, this is, I'm going to save up for 10 years and for my retirement or whatever, I'm going to go on this amazing vacation. I think people are going to do, be able to hop up on the suborbital flights and see the earth from space at that kind of level within about 10 years, I would guess. So now you're saying suborbital, that's not the moon though. That is within our, within orbit, earth's orbit, but not all the way to the moon. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the little hops that Blue Origin do now and Virgin Galactic have been doing, you know, those things. And then SpaceX, obviously, going to orbit is much more difficult. Going to the moon is still difficult, but it's nowhere near as difficult as it was when we had, you know, as you said, this thing that was like not one of uh, one of the phones we have now, but like a Nokia, you know, one of the old things. Right. Oh, I had one. It's, it's like that. Right. I mean, it's that computing power at best. Yeah, that's crazy. What about um what do you say what 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 do you think about or what's your what is your counter to the conspiracy that we haven't been to the moon and the Van H- Van Allen radiation belt and all the things like what is what is what is someone like you say to that? It's total shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's just nonsense. But it, it it's you know, it's nonsense at the same level there's lots of nonsense in the world there's flat earth people and all sorts of of stuff and so ultimately it is interesting why there's a serious side to it it's not so serious i suppose if people don't believe you know they went to the moon or whatever it is i think the earth is flat the problem is that what you're seeing there is um a distrust of science and a distrust actually of our political system i mean the idea the idea, the idea that for fifty years or more, uh, the political system can hide one of the, the, this great expenditure and hundreds of thousands of people's experience and hide it from everybody. I mean, that's nonsense in itself if you think about it. I mean, they, they can't hide. You know, you go back in, you go back to the scandals that affected past presidents and things like that. I mean, they can't. You know you can't hide anything right i mean in our country now we've got a prime minister who couldn't hide the fact that he had a party during covid lockdown so how the how these people are competent enough to cover up the expenditure of hundreds of billions of dollars over 10 years and keep hundreds of thousands of people quiet when they can't even keep a drinks party quiet is beyond (laughs) the really important point though is if it, it goes back to why is it important for people to have a basic kind of understanding of science um, it's not because you need to know the things, you know, how far the moon is away, how many galaxies there are in the observable universe. It doesn't matter whether people know that. But science is the way that we acquire reliable knowledge about nature. Mm-hmm. So it's the, the way we, we answer questions, which are good questions, such as if we carry on 
um, burning fossil fuels, then will there be an impact on the climate, right? That's just a completely sensible question to ask. Sure. And the way that we answer those questions, and we found out that there will be an impact, and there is being an impact, is by doing science. That's mm. important. So when you so the conspiracy theory can appear harmless, but then you get conspiracy theories about pandemic response or climate change or so on. Mm -hmm. Those are important problems because we live in democracies. And so if you have enough people who really don't understand um, how we acquire reliable knowledge, how to how to weigh um, or, or how to seek out trusted voices in society who know what they're talking about, and then make decisions based on that knowledge. Then, then we have a real problem in our democracies. We're liable to do really silly things. Um, so it becomes serious um, mm -hmm. when it becomes about you know, existential threats that we face rather than just some people thinking that, that you can't fly through a Van Allen belt, which is, I mean, I should say that you can go, the thing is you can read the, um, the research that was done. It's a good question. It's like, will, will launching a human being through into sort of beyond the, protective cocoon of our magnetic field right. and out into space will, will they be able to survive the radiation dose and it is dangerous and astronauts do get higher than average radiation doses and they have to be careful and you mm -hmm. can't launch them when the sun's very active and mm -hmm. actually you have to launch them carefully so you can avoid the worst of the radiation that's in things like mm -hmm. the banana belts but you can actually read all the research that was done so so you can see how it was done um, mm. And then, you know, the, the question becomes, well, why don't you, why, <laughs> why don't you just read, read, do a bit of reading? Because, you know, they're fun concepts and people, you know, I mean, people kind of have read reaffirming things, right? It takes well, a disciplined, open mind to be able to say, okay, if this is this, we have this perspective. Now let me look at the opposite perspective and evaluate all of the all of it so i can make my own decision or make an educated decision and i think probably for scientists and physicists and cosmologists and everyone in the science field that is figuring out new theories of things and equations is that you guys live in that space of being pro proving things right and wrong right everything that comes out gets highly scrutinized and that's just part of the process you know, it's one of the most important things. Um, if when you when we do science at school, right? So people go to school and do science experiments and things. What are they really learning? They're not really learning about how a pendulum swings or whatever it is. What they're really learning about is that process of acquiring knowledge. And um, Richard Feynman's one of my great heroes, Nobel Prize winning physicist. And he wrote a brilliant essay, which you can get online. Uh, you just type it in Richard Feynman. It's called The Value of Science. And, and he was, wrote it in the mid-1950s. It was a speech he gave, actually. And then um, he was th saying, what's the most valuable thing that science gives us? And it's not, you know, the knowledge or even mobile phones or weather forecasting or health care, you know, all those things, really important things. But ultimately, what it is, is humility. It's, it's that he called science, he defined it as a satisfactory philosophy of ignorance, which is a beautiful definition. And it's the idea that, that he said, we, we, it's the idea that we approach doubt and uncertainty, uh, not with fear. Right? We, don't, we don't approach doubt with fear. Mm -hmm. We approach it with excitement and mm -hmm. wonder that not knowing 
admitting that you don't know is the first step on the road to wisdom. And um, Feynman, by the way, wrote that, and he was very concerned about this propensity that we have as human beings to, to think that we know everything. We get it all the time. You turn on the TV and you go to a political chat show, whatever it is, and you get people who think they know, right? They, they give every impression of thinking they know how to run a society. But running a society is difficult. As Feynman said in his essay, that what a democracy is, is the acceptance that we don't know how to do it. So you mm -hmm. change it every four years. It, mm -hmm. You've got to understand that you've got to accept the fact that you don't know everything in order to, in, in order to be a Democrat. Um, if you, you're not a Democrat. You're not, you don't, you're not someone who celebrates democracy. I don't mean democratic politically, right? I mean it, just uh, mm -hmm. someone who mm -hmm. supports mm -hmm. democracy. You're not that if you think that you know how to do everything and you're so sure. And the way we've acquired all this knowledge that I, you know, I'm going to talk about in my, my shows about the, the size of the universe, the age of the universe. How do we measure these things? How do we know this stuff? How do we build spacecraft that go to different planets? We did it because there are some people who accept the fact that they know they don't know everything and so they're very careful and they try to find out and that's the important thing about science and science education it's teaching people to be humble and be comfortable with uncertainty and then you can move on and you can acquire reliable knowledge about the world is there something that has been proven to be different than your original opinion in your life oh, yeah. that's really big all the time. All I mean, the time. Uh, you know, I mean, when, <laughs> name when of the you, game, when you... I forget. But is there something that is central and something that was so felt very true to you that you had to change your mind about based on information? Actually, well, recently, I mean, um, I'll give you a physics physics example in a, in, in a minute. But um, in in just the way that I look at society, so um, so in the UK, um. We had we had this big boat, right? And we, we left the European Union. All right. And and it's like I I think that's a disaster. I think it was a, a, a bad choice. And for a while I thought it was such a bad choice that I thought, oh, we've got to, we can't do this, right? It's it's just it's a it's just a terrible mistake. But then I I came to understand what what I've just said. I mean, I've always the, the thing about democracy, right? I've always known that. So I've read Feynman for years. But I thought, you know, actually, the fact that decisions in your country swing against you. So the fact that sometimes there are people doing things that you think are just completely you know, the wrong thing to do. And you don't agree with the government at all. You don't agree with what's happened. And then sometimes you agree and, and things go your way. The fact that that pendulum swings is the sign that we live in a free society. Like the moment that your government, even if they're doing everything you want, if they're doing everything you want and that pendulum is not moving against you, then you should be really worried because you should think, well, this means that we no longer live in a society where things are being debated and where different opinions and different points of view are being celebrated and allowed to flourish mm -hmm. because the majority go one way and the majority go the other. Right. The moment that stops and the moment you agree with everything is the moment you should get very worried because you're living in a dictatorship then. You're not living right. in a free society anymore. So, so I realized by in thinking about 
a case where I really fundamentally disagreed with the decision that people made. I realized that actually I should celebrate that, unfortunate as I think it is and as disastrous as I think it is, because it tells me that I live in a free society and the pendulum will swing back if we make the arguments. So that so that's a, a political version. The, the, the science one I'll give you is just, it's an interesting story that the thing I'm researching at the moment and a big part of my life shows actually will be talking about black holes. And that's because black holes are the most baffling and interesting things and I could talk about them forever. Um, but one of the questions that was asked initially by Stephen Hawking, actually, by work he did back in the 70s, was what happens to stuff that falls in? Uh, does the, the information, if you throw a book into a black hole, is the information gone from the universe forever? Mm -hmm. um, he discovered that black holes, and it, this really was uh, what Stephen Hawking is most famous for in physics, he discovered that black holes evaporate away over time. It's called Hawking radiation. And so one day they're gone. So the question is, is the information gone? Right. And for many years, many years, even thought that the information was destroyed in black holes. And then he changed his mind. And now the current view is that, no, the information comes out. And we're pretty sure now, almost completely sure, that information survives. That process of going into a black hole gets radiated out into the universe. And in some sense, it's never lost. Um, but there's, there's, you know, one of the great physicists of the 20th century and 21st century, Stephen Hawking, changing his mind because he got a deeper understanding and more work was done. And that's what science is all about. Yeah. Thank you. Those are great stories. And especially from someone brilliant like yourself and explaining how you change your mind and someone like Stephen Hawking. Um, yeah. Okay, well, then let's talk about black holes because <laughs> I find it fascinating as well. Maybe we'll back up and start with energy, just the, just the universal understanding. And maybe this is, I think this is accurate. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> that energy can't be destroyed. It's only transformed. Yep. So everything is energy, right? So yep. even if a book went in there, it's some form of energy. Is this correct? Mm. Yeah. With that in mind, then transformed, could it, what could it become? Like what could the things that fall into the black hole become? Presumably, it doesn't always have to come out as a book, right? If we're just using that example. Well, no. It, so, so thing. If you think about something like a book, um, and then if we, if we wind back, um, how does physics work as we understand it at the fundamental level? It says that if you know everything about something, let's say a book, and then let's say we burn the book, so we set it on fire, then physics says that if we could collect everything all the gas and all the ashes and everything and measure everything that came off from that fire perfectly which is very hard to do but if we could do it mm -hmm. then we could run back time and reconstruct the book okay um so given that we know everything about something or, or with a great deal of precision at some moment we can predict what it's going to do in the future and what it was doing in the past that's okay. called determinism okay. that's central mm -hmm. to science it's how we do, how we look at the universe today and try and we model it and run it back in time and forwards in time and we see the big bang and we can measure the time back and all those things. So the question with black holes is, is that still true? Mm -hmm. So is, if we could collect everything that comes off the black hole when it's evaporated away through this process called Hawking radiation mm -hmm. and it's just mm -hmm. particles, nothing left, mm -hmm. the black hole's gone. Mm -hmm. Could some omnipotent being, right, in the far future with a huge quantum computer, feed everything in, 
and then reconstruct everything that fell in. And the laws of nature, as we understand them at the basic level, say yes. But the laws of nature also said, as we understood them at the basic level, with the black hole, initially, they said no. So we had a clash, a fundamental clash um, between our, with our laws of nature contradicting themselves, right? essentially. That's the, that was the wonderful thing about black holes. And it turns out that now it seems that, no, that the, ultimately as the black hole evaporates away, the information that fell in uh, gets imprinted into the radiation that comes off the black hole which is a really tremendously bizarre thing to happen. Um, and it's really, what it's done is it's challenged us to reassess our understanding of space and time. And, and now the, 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 the consensus view, I think, from the black hole research is that space and time are not fundamental things, that they emerge from something deeper. Einstein had this wonderful phrase, something deeply hidden. He said, when you look at nature in detail, you can catch a glimpse of something deeply hidden, which is the deep structure of nature. And it seems that there is such a structure of space and time. And that deep structure, which is what we call quantum theory, preserves information. So the patterns, the patterns evolve and change over time, but the patterns are always there. And you can always, if you could collect them and you were smart enough, you could run it back and see the patterns in the past. So one of the most fascinating things within science to me is fractals. Mm. Like, I just think fractals is fascinating. I constantly look at the way things are and just wonder what level, like what, what part of the fractal loop we're in. Is it, is our universe completely, is it fractal in nature? I, I think at a deep level, it, it isn't. So fractal, the, there's a great thing. If you go online, you can look at uh, the Mandelbrot set which is this, this um, mathematical structure, ultimately. And, and you, you, can, you can zone in. I, I, when I was little, actually, so I'm being really geeky now, I wrote a computer program to, to draw one. It's a really simple thing. And in this really simple bit of mathematics is this infinitely complex structure. And as you zoom in and in and in, you see the structure again and the structure again and the structure again. So I really recommend you go online and look at Mandelbrot's set and spend an afternoon or an evening zooming in and exploring this bizarre land that's mathematical. Um, so you can go infinitely deep, basically, and carry on, and you just see pattern after pattern after pattern repeating itself. Um, the universe, what black holes have told us is that the universe isn't like that. There's a really weird, strange results from black hole physics. And it's that, so let's say I say to you, how much information in bits, right? So literally in bits of information, like the memory in your phone, how much can I put in some given region of space? So you could look at the region of space in front of you now, just look in front of your nose, look at a little cubic centimeter or something of space, whatever it is, and say, how much information could I put in there? Um, the answer is that the maximum amount of information you can fit is you keep putting bits in and ultimately the thing collapses into a black hole right so there's kind of a limit before you make a black hole and the whole thing collapses and the amount of information in any given region of space seems to be proportional or actually equal in some sense to its surface area and not its volume so that's like saying if i was to ask you how many books can you put in a library 
how much information can you fit in a library? You'd say, well, it's got to do with how many books I can fit in. It's to do with the volume of the room. How many books can I get in the room? That's it. Or how many hard disks or whatever it is. But it turns out at a fundamental level, nature seems to say, no, it's only about the surface. It's not about the inside at all. And so this is leading us to think that we vastly overestimated the amount of information you can store in any given region of space. Um, and this leads to something called the holographic principle that we could talk about, which is... Um, that's I love that principle. I read the holographic universe the hologram. book and I thought it was fantastic. So a hologram is uh, the basic level. It's a, it's a piece of film, right? So a flat thing, uh, like a sheet of paper, two-dimensional thing, with all the information on it necessary to make a three-dimensional image of a thing. And it seems that at a very deep level, the universe is like that. And people are even, it came from black hole research, but people are even now, although it's not fully understood by any means, beginning to say, well, okay, so that means that there's an equivalent description of us. So me and you and everyone that's listening and watching, there's an equivalent description, which is some, in some sense, and physicists always use that phrase, by the way, when they're waving their hands around, right? In some sense, right? So it means we don't <laughs> fully get that, right? We don't fully understand it. But in some sense, the, 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 the information, our thoughts and everything that we experience is, is equally well represented on a surface surrounding us. So it's almost, it, it's, it's a, and in that sense, you could say that we're holograms and that's called the holographic principle. And that's really bizarre, but it's coming from research in black holes. Hmm. What part of the black hole? Is that all the information's on the outside? Well, so. The problem with a black hole is that from the outside, the thing behaves in a certain way. And that's how we view it, right? So, so we're out, we, we right. see one. There's a, there's a galaxy called M87, for example, about 55 million light years away. And we have a photograph of the black hole in that galaxy. And it's a, a huge black hole, six billion times the mass of the sun, supermassive black hole. So we know these things exist. We've got a picture mm -hmm. of one in that galaxy. Um, so from the outside, um, they're weird, right? So if, if I was to, if, if I said to you, you go into the journey into the black hole and I watched you go in. So I sat from afar and watched mm -hmm. you fall in. I would, I would never see you cross into the black hole. Uh, you would, you would freeze on what's called the event horizon. Mm -hmm. And it's actually it, from some perspectives, I could, I could imagine that you actually were completely incinerated on the event horizon and all your ashes came out into space yeah. and I could collect them and I could reconstruct you, right? If I was clever yeah. enough. Humpty um, Dumpty. So I could do that. But yeah, but from your perspective, you would fall in across the horizon inside of the black hole. You go into the interior of the black hole you could float around in there in the interior of the M87 black hole for, I think it's about 35 hours or something, if I remember rightly, before you meet the end of time. So you go to the end of time, ultimately, in the black hole. So from your perspective, you go in and you end your days at the end of time, which is called the singularity in the black hole. Whereas from the external perspective, you never cross the horizon. So you're saying if you watched it, I wouldn't change, but... So what goes in? My consciousness? My No, you would you would go in. There's a thing called the equivalence principle in relativity, fundamental to Einstein's theory, which says that you wouldn't notice. So you you could fall in across the horizon of the black hole into the interior and you would notice nothing. 
you'd sit there looking at your watch. It would tick at one second per second. You would feel no ill effects at all. In you go. But from the external perspective, you never get in. Um, and uh, that, so the, the, the modern understanding is that both are true. So our universe is constructed in a very strange way where things that you might think are a contradiction um, actually, it just depends on your point of view, whether you got in or not. Um, but the outcome <laughs> it ultimately is the same. So no contradictions appear. And that's been central to black hole research. It's got a fancy name. It's called black hole complementarity. And it's broadly speaking thought to be correct now. But it really, it challenges us to think about what we mean by reality, because it means that our reality is so strange, so much stranger than we could possibly have imagined. Still works, still works. The laws of nature apply, but it's not quite what we expected. <laughs> you know, our common sense is, is not a good guide. How strange do you think it is? How far can your mind go? Everybody's mind. I mean, that, this is the wonderful thing about, um, about science. It's not... I always, when I go into schools sometimes and, uh, you know, people have a tendency to think, well, scientists are just really clever. Well, you are clever. I mean, you are clever. Scientists are not any cleverer than anybody else, right? They're, they're just people that spent their time learning about stuff like this. Um, they're no cleverer than someone who's a great musician or uh, a football player or whatever it is, a great sports person, that it's just, it's all about practice and about the thing that captures your imagination. And I think, you know, to be a good guitarist, you have to practice as long as you have to practice to be a good physicist, pretty much. You just practice in different things. I'm curious about space and time and yeah. density and dimensions and all of that. And along with that, I'm curious about how general relativity and quantum mechanics don't aren't always in sync. So maybe explaining what quantum mechanics and general re relativity are and where they don't where they don't jive and yeah. then going into space and time and I'm just curious maybe maybe it maybe it's a local phenomenon at, at a certain density or um, at a certain dimensional level Yep. but isn't something that crosses over into every aspect of the universe. So what comes to mind when I say all these things? Yeah, no, you, they, they're really exactly the right questions to ask. And, and gen, general relativity is a, it's a hundred year old theory. It was published in 1915. And it's a theory of gravity, which is ultimately, it takes space and time or woven together into, it's often called the fabric of the universe, right? It's right. called space time. But essentially, the picture is that anything, matter, energy, um, warps and distorts the fabric. Mm -hmm. And the thing that we feel is gravity is the distortion of the fabric. And so often mm -hmm. you see um, mm -hmm. people, you know, imagining it by rolling a kind of a little ball around on a on a rubber sheet that's deformed yep. in some way, like a mattress. Yep. Um, and the, the the ball will be deflected. And that's that's basically what um, what Einstein's theory of gravity is. And um, quantum mechanics, quantum theory is um, it, it, essentially the, the old fashioned way to think about it, I suppose. It's our theory of everything else. So it's a theory of particles and forces, how they interact. It's, uh, it's odd. It, it doesn't, um, it, again, it's the same age of general relativity. It was around being formulated around the same time, about 100 years ago. And it's, um, it doesn't really fit with our intuition, but 
um, there are there are phenomena like entanglement, which is a really inherently quantum thing. And, and a way you can think about that is to imagine a, a coin that you can toss, right? Heads or tails. Um, and so it, then imagine two coins and I could separate them and I could toss one of them, that would be heads and that would be tails and so on. But there's an idea, if you had a quantum coin, you can set these things up, these two coins, such that they're in what's called a state where it's, I'll say what it is, it's heads, tails, plus tails, heads, for example. So that says that if I separate these coins, if I take them and separate them to a light year or across the universe in principle, and I toss one, and I don't know about the other one, so I, it'd come up 50% heads and 50% tails, just, and I wouldn't know any different. And the same with the one that I took to the other end of the universe. But actually what you'd find, if you could look at both the results of both of those coin tosses, you would find they never both come up heads or both come up tails, ever. So that's what's called an entangled system. Um, and it's unique to quantum mechanics. It's not weird in a sense. We use it in quantum computers. So it's an everyday feature of the world, but it's not a feature that we're familiar with. So, so quantum mechanics is, is, is an odd theory, but it's very well understood. And it underpins modern electronics and lasers and all sorts of things. So it works. Um, but you're right to say that the, the great clash that Stephen Hawking really precipitated in thinking about black holes was that was a clash between a quantum mechanical description of the black hole and a purely gravitational description. And then um, ultimately it's been resolved, I think, in, in, in favor of quantum theory. So there are, there are one or two physicists, there are a few physicists wouldn't agree with that, but I think the consensus is that quantum theory is the, the base thing and actually entanglement. So that thing I described about this kind of strange link between the yeah. quantum coins, yeah. um, entanglement, we're now strongly suspecting builds up space and time. So space and time themselves are coming from, emerging from quantum entanglement. Um, so I think um, that we're in the early stages of understanding how that happens, and it's really new research, but that's really where we are. So I think I would be safe to say, and I think most physicists would agree, that at the base level of the universe is quantum. And all this space and time and gravity stuff really are coming out of the quantum theory. So you're saying that the, the penny or whatever the coin is, has at one part of the one side of the universe, it's a heads and the other side of the universe, it's a tails and it always correlates. Yeah. So it's a, it's a it's, polarity. Is it sort of the, does that even, is that even matter? Is that, is polarity part of that of like, you know, the, the universe trying to balance itself? No, it's, it's the fact that the, you can have a description it, just in, in our normal world. We have a, a description of these of things that are that are completely separate from each other. So the coins would be, you could you could correlate them by saying, I will give you a little box which has two coins in, and I'll always set them up so one's heads and one's tails or something like that. The key thing about entanglement is that the system is set up so that you don't know. You can know everything about the system. So it is in quantum language, heads, tails, plus tails, heads. That's what it is. That's a complete 100% description of that system. Mm -hmm. 
But if I separate out the bits, I know nothing about the two bits of the thing at all. Mm -hmm. Right? They completely correlate. All the information about the system is distributed across the whole thing. None of it's in the individual parts. Mm -hmm. So so you look at an individual part, it'll be completely random. Heads, tails, 50% of the time. But the whole thing is set up in such a way that if you set it up and take these coins away, uh, if that one's going to be tails, this one's going to be heads. They were neither before those measurements were made, before the coins were tossed. They weren't secretly heads or secretly tails. So it's a completely different logic. It's a lot different logical structure. Um, so it's very counterintuitive. But we're talking about polarity. That there's a property of particles called spin where this is realized. So they're like quantum coins, really. And, and we use it now in a quantum cryptography, for example. So this is becoming technology now, this, this idea of using entanglement. And also in quantum computing, extremely exciting. So, so we're now, it, this is not just wishy-washy wild stuff. It's, it's fundamental. We use it. We use it in laboratories. As it's, people think of entanglement as an information resource now, mm-hmm. a resource that we can use to build computers. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's profound because it it really does seem to be the case that entanglement builds up space time. So it, it's almost like it's the underpinning structure. I mean, imagine a world where at the fundamental level, space which is this thing we take for granted. It's the room that we're in. We talk about things being one mile apart or something. We think we know what we mean by distance and separation. Yeah. Actually, no, underpinning that, it does seem, is a, is a world of quantum entanglement in which there is no concept of distance or separation or space. It emerges. It's like, it's like saying, um, you know, you, you know, I talk about us, right? We, you, right? What are you? You're a human being. And you're thinking and feeling, and we're having this conversation. But actually, there's another level, which you could call a deeper level, where you're just atoms. So you're just protons and neutrons and electrons, and the protons and neutrons are made of quarks, and they're all stuck together. And that's a description of you. I mean, that's Um, true. That's true. It's true. But it isn't you. It isn't. It feels like it isn't all there is to you, right? There's also you, a human being with thoughts and feelings and you know, the, the, the most wonderful structure in the universe, which is what human beings are. In the same way, we're saying that, um, that space and time are like that. And, and it's, it's as incomprehensible, but then again, no less incomprehensible. Is that the fact that a human being can be made of atoms, what we're saying is space and time can be made of something else, which seems to be quantum entanglement. And that's what Einstein said, spooky thing called spooky things happening at, happening at a distance, well, right? Einstein really didn't like it. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> he called entanglement spooky action at a distance. He didn't yeah. think the world behaved like that. And really never, uh, I mean, he, he understood very well quantum mechanics. It's, it's a myth that he didn't, he understood the theory. He was one of the instigators of it. So he mm. understood it perfectly well. He just didn't like it. <laughs> right? He, he mm. thought that really it's not going to be the base description. There's going to be something else. Actually, the now in the 21st century, we think, no, there isn't anything else. That's really it. That is the, the way the world behaves at a deep level. And um, the things that we are really familiar with um, actually just emerge from this deeper level. Do you think we're getting closer to a theory of everything? 
Yeah, I really do, actually. Um, I mean, it, it, you've got to describe what that is. I mean, it, it doesn't mean that we know everything, right? But um, Is there an equation that you could, is there an equation that explains how things happen at in every way at every level, at least at I, this I think, point in time? I, I think, I mean, I should row back. When I said yes, I, I'm going to now say don't know, right? But what I'm going to say is that our study of black holes uh, as, is pushing us, and this is really papers, and I talk about these in the live show. I, I think it's really wonderful because I'm talking about research that's being done now. So papers that have been published in 2021, 2022. Uh, this work is revealing a, a deeper level of description of reality. Um, whether it's the base level, um, we, we have no idea. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it could be you carry on. What's that saying? It's turtles all the way down, right? Who knows? Who knows where the Tower of Turtles ends? Um, I don't know anything about be. turtles, but <laughs> it, it could be. It could be that we, we're certainly getting a glimpse of a deeper description of reality. I think that's fair to say. Now, whether that is a theory of everything, whether it's the base level theory, I really don't think anybody knows. Uh, and it's almost not worth speculating because it's kind of meaningless, probably. Mm -hmm. Um, all we can do is keep digging. And the, the wonderful thing about this work that Einstein, you know, set in motion with general relativity and quantum mechanics, and then people like Stephen Hawking and Roger Penrose took that on in the 1970s. And now there are, there are, there are great physicists um, in, in the, you know, working now, young physicists, Netta Engelhart is one, and uh, uh, Jeff Pennington, you, you, list, this list of names, people in their 20s mainly, who are uncovering a deeper description that's, mm -hmm, uh, that, mm -hmm. that's uh, beginning to bring these ideas together. So it's great to see this progress that's being made. It's very, very exciting at the moment, and it's moving so fast. It needs to be talked about, I guess, especially based on not understanding and this whole idea of being connected through the quantum field. But like, where does consciousness fit into all that? And, you know, I don't know if that's something that you specifically study or if that's just something that you think about. And is there what what are, what are your thoughts on consciousness and how could that play a role in this connectedness? And when you talk about us as humans being protons, electrons, neutrons and energy, like what makes us think and have feelings and thoughts and you know, is that consciousness and is that the thing connected to everything? I, I, I really don't think so. And I don't, I think that um, we, we don't understand what consciousness is. It, it's called a hard problem. The people who work in this area, neuroscientists call it the hard problem. We're miles away. I mean, I interviewed Neil deGrasse Tyson and he said, when there's a lot of books being written about something, you know, we don't get it. Yeah, it's look, it's it's probably the it, human brains are the most complex things we know of anywhere in the universe. They're, they're harder to understand in many, very many ways than the entire than the universe itself. Mm -hmm. like understanding the evolution of galaxies is kind of easy <laughs> compared to understanding human brains, and so I, we just don't know about consciousness. I, I what I would say uh, it's a physical property of the universe it emerges in accord with the laws of nature um mm -hmm. as i've said we we know basic laws of nature i don't think you're going to need to understand quantum gravity to understand consciousness i think okay. it, we do very well with um with with biochemistry and, and uh, the, the structure of the brain i think will be understood 
uh, it's what we call room temperature physics and chemistry and biology, right? So the stuff that happens um, in the familiar surroundings in which we live. I think that's where an understanding of consciousness will come from. I don't think you're going to need to go to quantum gravity to understand consciousness. So I don't think entanglement and those things, they're, they're a part of the physical structure of the brain, right? So, so when, when you, you could, you can argue if you want to go down to drill down into deep chemistry, you need to understand quantum mechanics and the way the electrons are in atoms and so on. But I, I think ultimately consciousness is going to be something that's understood by thinking about atoms and molecules, although we are miles away from understanding it. What about dark energy and dark matter? Is that just code for we don't get it because? Well, the dark matter so we should say what they are first. So, so when we look out, we've got loads of evidence that if you look into the way that galaxies interact with each other, the way they rotate, the way they formed in the early universe, we've got huge amounts of evidence that there's more matter out there than we see shining in the sky or interstellar gas and dust and so on. And it, it's pretty strong evidence that that's some kind of subatomic particle that we've not yet discovered but we see it through its gravitational influence. And that we have wonderful models of all sorts of things, many different observations, and they all point in that direction. And we, to be honest, we thought, I think many of us thought that the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, we'd have seen some evidence for these dark matter particles. We'd be making them in mm. particle collisions, and we haven't mm -hmm. done. And uh, that's a surprise. So mm -hmm. we're still looking, and that, that machine has been upgraded, and we're, we're looking, and... So we might do, but I think it, it's one of those things. It's science. Nature is uh, always perplexing and surprising and outsmarts us all the time. So we haven't found yet what that particle might be. So it's still open that there's something else going on, but we're pretty sure. Um, dark energy is a different thing. It's um, we, we are, again, pretty sure that the universe is accelerating in its expansion now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, that was a tremendous discovery that was made in the 1990s. And uh, Einstein's theory, the venerable theory of general relativity, tells us that if we see how the universe is expanding and changing and stretching, so the fabric of the universe is stretching, it allows us to discern what's in it, the kind of stuff, how much matter and dark matter and we find that we need some other stuff called dark energy, which is allowed in the theory. So Einstein knew about it. Um, he had one model for it called the cosmological constant that he put in the theory. Um, so it's there. Um, we, it, but we really don't understand at a deep level what it is. Uh, it's one of the great mysteries. And maybe, you know, we're to speculate. Maybe we're going to need the, the understanding of space and time that we're getting from black hole research in order to make more progress in understanding the nature of dark energy. Maybe. So mm -hmm. it's, it's exciting. We're, we're talking about the frontier. But the observation is that the universe is expanding and it's accelerating in its expansion. And that's what dark energy is. So a catch-all term for whatever's doing that, yeah. which is a pretty good observation of the universe that we have. So is there a possibility that there's a correlation between quantum entanglement and this? Because it is assuming yeah. that there's some kind of energy needed for that. There's some kind of communication of some sort. And is there, and since we don't understand what it is, is it possible that that's part of that fabric or that? Yep, absolutely. So it's a great question. And yes, I think that um, it, it, if we're beginning to see that 
Um, and I, as I said, most, many physicists, not all, would agree with this, what I'm going to say. So we're beginning to see that space emerges from quantum entanglement. And dark energy, the, the, this, this accelerating expansion of the universe, is something to do with space. It's some property of space. So it's not, we're a long way off, but, it, uh, but it's, it's a reasonable um, kind of guess that uh, it, it may be that we need to understand more about the, what, the nature of space itself in order to understand what dark energy is. It doesn't have to be. Um, there, there are theories that have it as some kind of diff new field that permeates the universe and so on. But it does seem to be uh, something to do with space itself. Or, so so I, there is something fundamental in there that we don't understand at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Are you ever afraid that us as humans are just maybe not supposed to get it? Like we don't have the capability of quantifying, understanding the reality of the universe? Well, we, we, all we can do is say that we haven't come up to that barrier yet. Um, I mean, there's, there's a great uh, physicist here, a friend of mine, Ma Martin Rees, Lord Rees. He's a, he was the Astronomer Royal. Isn't that a great thing? The Astronomer Royal, right? Um, so, and he, he's made that point that, it, that it's possible that we're just not smart enough. So when we talk about a theory of everything, it may be there is one, but it's just beyond our capabilities. But we have no evidence that we've not reached the limit yet. And I think we thought we might. We, we were confused about black holes for a long, long time. And, and I think many scientists, even you know, 10 years, even five years ago, would think, oh, well, you know, this is, this is something for the far future. You know? And then suddenly, in the last few years, a few really clever people buildings literally standing on the shoulders of giants as newton said um have, have actually made a breakthrough and found a way of, of making really rapid progress so um so you know all i can say is that usually as of now we've been smart enough which is a remarkable thing i always wonder if we're just zeros and ones are we a simulation well there's two, the, the, those don't follow from each other. So are we just zeros and ones? John Wheeler, one of my great heroes, one of the great physicists, the greatest of the 20th century, um, had this idea, he used to talk about it from bit. So he used to say that information theory, right? The theory, the computing theory, ones and zeros or qubits, which are the quantum versions of that, would underlie reality in some way. And that's uh, in... Uh, the message that the, the black hole physics is giving to us, it's we've got to this realization through thinking about information, information conservation, how information is shared in systems, how it comes out of systems um, at, like black holes and Hawking radiation and so on. So there is some um, a, a good case to be made that thinking in terms of bits of information theory is a, it allows us a very much more powerful window onto nature. Um, so whether that is telling you that the universe is, is made of bits at a fundamental level, um, maybe. Um, but I don't think you can extrapolate from that to say that we live in a simulation. It might just be that the base level of reality is best understood and described in terms of bits of information. Um, I, I think it's a huge leap to, that for which we have no evidence at all 
to say, therefore, we live in a great, a big quantum computer. I think that's going, the, the, the correct thing to say is, it's interesting that many of the ideas from quantum computing are turning out to be useful in describing physical reality. That's clearly true, right? Um, but, but to go the extra mile and say, therefore, we live inside a big computer seems to me to be a grotesque <laughs> you know, well, it would be overextension. The reality of that would be sad, but it kind of doesn't even change anything. Yeah. The truth of the reality, and it helps you maybe understand what's possible or what's not possible. But I find it fascinating how people can fall into patterns and archetypes and there are certain disorders or cancers or anything and they, ha they have a pattern. They, there can be two people that have no idea what they have going on, but they develop the same pattern of something, whether it's a personality disorder or a disease. And I just find that kind of fascinating. Yeah. Um, pa patterns. I mean, that's what we do. That's what we search for in nature. That's how you do science, really. You're looking for patterns. And that, you know, there's a wonderful book um, by uh, Johannes Kepler. So Kepler was around in the 1620s, right? So before Kepler Newton, or Kepler? Kepler. And he wrote a book called The Six-Cornered Snowflake, which is one of my favorite books. It's a brilliant book. Okay. And uh, he's talking about walking across a bridge in Prague and a snowflake lands on his arm. And he looks at it and he, he starts thinking about this thing, that the snowflakes, they're all the same, but they're all different. So mm -hmm. what is it telling us? And in 1620, Kepler starts thinking well it must be telling us about the underlying structure there's something in there that it's 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 something deeply hidden and of course <laughs> he's right it's the water molecule that's doing it but he could not know that he didn't know about atoms or molecules but it's wonderful and and, and at the end he says there's this wonderful the translation of it i have says that i'm knocking on the doors of chemistry it says but i must leave it i must leave this to you dear reader right to the future because I can't go any further. I don't know enough, but it, knocking on the doors of chemistry. And I love that book. It's so wonderful. It's such a beautiful, uh, it, it, what, when you, Kepler was a genius. There's no doubt when you read that book, he's funny and he's insightful. And he was a modern mind at, at the level of the best physicist that we have working today. But in this world where he didn't know very much, but he's still asking the right questions. He's saying, does the pattern the pattern in the snowflake, what is it? The six, 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 kind of six corner pattern thing. What is it telling me about the deep structure of nature? And it's, it's wonderful. It makes me think of cymatics and thinking about how, you know, you've seen the sand on the drum and they can play it and it short shapes different patterns and yeah. how this pattern can repeat in nature and how, you know, this, again, this pattern emerges in different forms at different levels in different ways, whether it's an animal or music, and you wonder what that significance is. Yeah, and, and absolutely. And it's about asking that question. It's about what were the, the regularities I see in nature, the shape of a snowflake, the swirls of the galaxies, the, you know, the, the way that black holes behave. Um, what are those patterns telling me about the underlying structure? And that, that's what science is. What is your, what is the most important or most critical question that you hope can be answered in your lifetime? I would love to know um, whether we're alone in this neighborhood. So I'd love to know 
whether there's life on Mars, um, whether there's life in our solar system, whether there's life nearby. I'll never know. You, know, you never know. If, if the answer is negative, we'll never know um, because we can't survey the entire universe. But it would be lovely to see that there are other microbes and we're searching for that on Mars now. So, so it's not beyond the realms of possibility. And the other one is the, the, uh, to see how the black hole research develops because ultimately um, that, that, that's our window onto the origin of the universe. If indeed the universe had an origin, so we don't have the theoretical tools yet to talk about really um, what happened. You know, did, did the universe have an origin in time or not? We, we were really in the dark. We don't really know. Um, we know there's a big bang, but we don't know right. if there's things before that or what the universe was like before that. So I think that that's what we need. That's where we need what you refer to as a theory of everything, quantum gravity. And those theories are closer i think than everybody thought five years ago well i'll ask you the same question i asked neil i'm like do you think that we're maybe looking for the wrong thing you know like we're looking for us but we fit perfectly into this environment which is so fragile as you said well um it's possible i mean uh, that's one of the reasons we're bringing the samples back from mars actually because um it's so difficult to know what to look for when you're looking for living things. But when you're looking for civilizations, possibly again, I mean, uh, people make the argument that maybe there are, there are uh, machines from other civilizations around and maybe they're too small. Maybe, you know, if, if, if they were really smart and their space probes were the size of iPhones, would we notice? Right? Right. <laughs> the answer the nano, is probably not. Nanobots or whatever. Exactly. They would call so, so you're right. We, 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 you know, all we can say is that in, in the limited time we've had and we've looked and we've seen no evidence of anything, but you're, you're right. I mean, it could just be because things are really small <laughs> and we just don't see them. Right. Or it's in the dark energy and it's in a different dimension and it's information as opposed to matter like this or what we call matter. Argument that, um, we 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 have a pretty deep understanding of the universe, and if you look, if you want to look for different forms of matter, different forces of nature, um, we, you know, it be, it has to be quite subtle, um, because we're pretty good at exploring the universe in some detail. But you know, that science, as I said, is about understanding that you don't know everything, so we certainly don't know everything. Such a humble place to come from. You're starting your tour uh, of the mm. U.S. and Canada, right? How many stops yeah. are you making? Oh, it's about 50 or something like that. It's a huge tour. So we, we start. Are you coming um, to Arizona? I'm not coming to Arizona, sadly, yet. <laughs> so, no, and I love we Arizona. We have so much I, extraterrestrial activity I'm here in our skies. I'm so surprised we're not, because Tucson is one of my favorite cities. And I am I'm, I was quite disappointed that at the moment we don't have a show there. But um, we've got shows across, you know, all down into Texas and all across the Northeast and then all down the West Coast. Uh, Midwest, so and Canada as well. So we start on um, I don't know when the podcast going. We start on Friday, so that would be what would that be the twenty, what is it twenty something? I don't even know. See, I'm a physicist, so I don't know what what. You're what a numbers guy. Come on, Brian. yeah, yeah. Twenty second, twenty <laughs> second in twenty second in Washington uh, and DC, and then on from there. And we're, we're it's about three months in total. We don't finish That's until amazing. July. You're a rock star. Well, you know, um, I think it, the era of stadium cosmology is upon us. 
I love it. I, I, I very much love it. And if you are coming anywhere within the Arizona region, I would love to come and see your present, your lecture and your, all of your examples on the screen. I'm sure you have that. Didn't you have a huge show that had like giant screens at some point? Well, we're in bringing time? them to the US. So we, 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 it's all LED screens in the UK where we have 15,000 people come to the shows. So we have these huge screens or a hundred feet wide. Um, and uh, we just put as much as, it, as we can into every theater. So, um, so we'll be in, um, where are we near you? We're in, in, in Texas and then places like that, Denver, Salt Lake City. We, we, we'll put um, as much screen as we can in there. And the graphics have been developed, you know, for arenas. And so therefore, in a theater, you get a different experience and you get an experience you couldn't have had in, a, in it, you know, no one could afford to do that in theaters. But because we also have the arenas in the UK and Australia and some big shows in Canada, then we can spend the money on the graphics. We use the graphics code from Interstellar, for example, to simulate black holes. We've used uh, the Unreal Engine, which is the video game engine, to build virtual worlds that actually are rendered in real time in the, in the theater. So we can have sunsets and the lighting rig interacts with the screen. All these things, this really wonderful technology that we can use. And we're bringing it all to the U.S., and, but you get to see it in a more intimate setting. I would love that. And then at some point you can use like the holographic principles of some sort and create like the sky above us in an arena, right? You could do it at a stadiums and yeah, just that's put your, put your maps in the sky. Yeah. It's a plan. And we've got a classical music version because there's some, there's some classical music in the show. So we, we're going to, in 2023, we're going to bring the show out um, and hopefully to the U S and Canada with orchestras and do the same thing. In a, in a slightly different show with a symphony orchestra. So we've oh, got, man. we've got big plans. You're going to create a little vortex when you do that. <laughs> yeah. Love it. I yeah. don't even know what that means, but it sounds cool. I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Brian. This is fascinating and I could talk your ear off, but I got to go. They said, I got to go. Good luck on the tour. And I hope I see you along the way. Well, um, uh, so we'll find out, I'll find out where the nearest show is and you, you must come. I'd love to see you. So, um, that's um i will send you a message of where the nearest one is and awesome. send a car send a car i'll send a car for you <laughs> well i'll drive it you send the car and i'll drive it okay we'll do that <laughs> thanks everybody for listening to the pretty intense podcast today i hope you enjoyed it if you like what you heard today and you want to hear more please click on the subscribe button